the lights are blinking. I'm thinking it's all over when I go out drinking. Oh, making my mind slow. That's why I don't f with the big bro. Oh, bro, I got to maintain. Cause it like me is going insane. Insane in the membrane. How you guys doing with uh, this New World Order lockdown fake barely worse than the flu bill gates virus i uh <laughs> lost my voice this week and uh i think it was because of allergies all your truck rants yeah totally totally that and the uh the, the allergies or I, I i i've been telling people that i decided that i was more hardcore than everybody and i went and got covid 20 oh yeah. shit that's I got mega covid one of the things i've realized is that no matter what information that you put out there like just specifically from my interactions with people on Facebook and stuff, no matter what information you put out there, you're going to piss somebody off. It could just be like, mm-hmm. I am posting this study. It's just a study. I am assigning no value judgment to it whatsoever. Not even putting an opinion on it. There's going to be like 14 motherfuckers in there saying it's not taking it seriously enough. 14 other ones saying it's taking it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Is that the thing you posted earlier about the antibody study and how it's like 50 to 80 times more, uh, more prevalent? Yeah, they're, they're saying that. that yeah, yeah, they're saying it's possible that fifty to eighty times more people in California have been exposed than mm-hmm. they currently know of because they found antibody, like way more antibodies than should be there. Which brings the death toll down to like 05 percent instead of four percent. If that many more people are exposing, being exposed, it's going to lower the actual death toll uh, percentages, and yeah. that pissed some people off because it's lessening the severity of the illness. I'm like. I think, dude, if we could lessen the severity of the illness, I think that would be great. Well, in people's minds, not actually, you know, there's like, we don't know anything about this. It's irresponsible. I'm like, shit, man, it's just a study. It says, it even says in the article that it's one study and they're going to do more to try to confirm their hypothesis. It's the way fucking science works. Yeah. I actually have an example of this earlier too. I posted, I think it was a New York Post headline where it said 4,300 millionaires from the stimulus basically. And it said in quotes, like they also get a stimulus. They get a huge percentage of it, but it's going to come in like tax breaks and things that are eventually going to mean that they don't have to pay back or pay in any sort of taxes or anything else. But it basically equals out to like $1.6 million per mm-hmm. millionaire who got the stimulus. So I just posted the story. It was like fairly straightforward. You know, that's the headline. I read the article first before I posted it. So I actually, you know, knew what it said and didn't just base it on the headline alone. And I had one guy, some random ass boomer musician (laughs) I I knew from 10 years ago who I haven't talked to, haven't seen in a decade, decided to post, oh, and you're going to believe that headline? So it's like, uh, okay, I'm just not even engaging with this guy. Fuck it. Jason, tell us your uh, your thoughts about people on the internet. I can break it down into a pretty simple formula for you. Everybody is dumb and wrong, and either they've neatly fit into, broadly speaking, one of two categories. The the first is uh, charlatans, and the other is rubes. That's it. That's the internet. I'm usually not in favor of hard dichotomies like that, but you know what? Fuck it. I like that one. I'm going to use okay. that one. Let's base everything around it. Yeah, the space in between those two categories is razor thin, and there are people on it. <laughs> But they tip over into one side or the other all the time. I'm a dialectal combination of both. It's a charlatan and a rube. Charlatan rube. Yeah. Makes charlatan elements of both. Yeah. <laughs> the I desperately want to be given the truth to everything, but until I'm given it, I'll just pretend I already have it. That's uh, being a, a sect Marxist. Yeah. Can you dive in here a little bit and tell me what do you mean when you say charlatan and what do you mean when you say rube exactly? I, I want to know what that means to you. Uh, like an analyst. 
So when I say charlatan, I guess what I mean is people of every variety, whether you're talking about like a religious or ideological worldview or like the most in-depth, having having done the most in-depth study of given phenomenon or person with a unique relationship with someone in a position of influence so that they, you know, they have the inside scoop, but just, you know, you, you run into countless hordes of people who are like, oh, don't worry, I've got it. I have figured it out. When I say rubes, I'm talking about the people who uh, listen to them and go, oh yeah, well, a guy I know knows a guy on the city council. So the coronavirus is fake or, you know, some other version of that. Like here's a picture of like a very obviously photoshopped picture of something which if it were true would disprove a commonly held perception and millions of people go that's enough for me charlatans make those and rubes share them this reminds me of uh something that we talked about in the the first episode we did where i talked about like the the really big building that has all sorts of things in it like file cabinets and ducks and no light switch and uh what i think you're talking about when you say charlatans are people who are walking around saying like hey guess what i got night vision goggles and i can lead you to that light switch I know where it is. All you need to do is give me $50 and follow me. The the rubes would be the people who are like, you know what? Uh, do, do you take checks? Uh, can I pay value? Yeah. Like, what's, uh, what's your Venmo, man? Yeah, totally. There you go. <laughs> what's your OnlyFans for finding the light switch? <laughs> I know a um, guy who found the light switch once, you know. Well, so that I, man was Jesus. <laughs> Lennon found the light switch. And if we don't do exactly everything that Lennon did at all we times, won't find the light switch. we're not going to find the light switch. It doesn't bald. matter if they've remodeled the room a thousand times. The light switch is still in the same place. Or if the room was in a oh, different yeah. building in a different country. It's a, it's a really cool metaphor. Uh, because of the way in which it can be abused and not die. <laughs> so look, when I talk about the charlatans and rubes, um, I don't want to make it into a bit, right? I'm not, I don't want to be Bill Hicks about this and be like, oh yeah, I'm one of the only like dozen people who is neither of those. It's more a matter of just trying to not be one of those, probably failing often, right? But to at least be comfortable with being uncomfortable and recognizing like, I don't really fucking know. Our whole shtick is like that we can neither be charlatans, charlatans nor rubes because we don't trust anybody (laughs) and we aren't trying to convince anyone of anything. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the third camp. Yeah. Third camp. (laughs) Neither charlatan nor rube, but international pessimism. This is for dorks is what this is. <laughs> Some fucking nerdy ass shit. So I'm curious, are y'all familiar with Walter Lippman? Uh, a little bit. He's a, oh, Wally Lips? My old boy, OG, Wally Lips. Walter Lippman's the, uh, the journalist, right? Yeah, he was for a very, very long time sort of the preeminent American liberal intellectual and very internationally renowned. Actually, was a big influence on the early thinkers in the Mont Pelerin Society, which were sort of like the you know, fathers of neoliberalism. But he wrote a book called Public Opinion. And I still think today it is one of the most relevant things to read about how things like Facebook and media shape this sort of experience of being a charlatan or a rube or why we share and infor- like how information functions. But the basic idea was his whole premise was that in modern democracy, it is actually impossible to trust the mass of people with actually being able to know enough information about their surrounding environment to be able to operate and make rational decisions which would allow liberal democracy to continue to function. So his whole idea was that it is a necessity to actually control the environment around the the citizenry, and it has to be shaped in a particular way 
to essentially ensure that they don't know enough that they will like fuck up the system, but they have to be informed to some degree to allow them to be active participating citizens. But the whole idea of like the whole purpose of media and public opinion is to shape that environment around you and to like make a chaotic, you know, um, completely nonsensical world or a world that is too complex for your average person. You have to be able to dumb it down so they can understand it. And I still think today, like whenever you see how articles get shared on Facebook and the way that people react to them, it's still like maybe one of the best theories from an elite who sort of helped define the philosophy of how media would function in a, in a modern democracy. I still think it's unparalleled to read it if you want to actually have insight into like, oh yeah, like how does Facebook work? And why is it that fake news and the way that like we shape our perceptions around these like spheres of media influence? I still think like Lippmann's theory is actually one of the best ones if you want to understand it. I'm also trying to salvage something fucking theoretical and serious out of this. (laughs) No, I was going to say that uh, it's very well noted. I'm going to, uh, because I've never read, what's it called again? It's just called Public Opinion. I think it was published in like the early to mid 20s. I mean, you can find a free PDF of its public domain everywhere. But it's seriously, it is an astonishing book to read. It's it's really worth your time. Makes cool. me think. I of, wrote it down a little bit about um, kind of like what what the the big Lacanian project really is. A lot of times is we, we Lacanians call it traversing the fantasy. The idea is that um, pretty much everybody goes through a period where they have a fantasy and the fantasy is of, of some kind of complete other. And if you can, you know, kind of align yourself with that complete other, then that complete other will keep you safe and secure and give you what you want. And for some people, that's a church. For other people, it's a political party, so on and so forth. And it's a fantasy. You know, it's not, it's not real uh, in the way that people think that it is. Now, when people traverse the fantasy successfully, and this is, I think, with your uh, Bill Hicks comment, Jason, it's not that you're going to stop having it. You're you're always, to some degree, going to have a version of this fantasy. What it kind of maps to will slide around and stuff, but it'll always be there in some form. But what you might be able to do is sort of like shrink the amount of time that exists between experiencing like the, the fantasy kind of like happening in some way and recognizing that that's what's happening, that you're doing it again, that you're engaging in this fantastical desire to believe that something to believe that something exists even though it doesn't exist and then once you you do that you can be like oh okay i'm, I'm doing that then that you know theoretically opens up a variety of different choices for you you can act differently because you've recognized yourself and implicated yourself in the kind of belief of a fantasy i think that's incredibly intriguing the I, tell me if I'm getting this right, but I think it's really similar to the way that we talk about like the function of utopia being something that, you know, you can be entirely conscious of the uh, not fully reachable nature of a given sort of vision for something. And yet it's that aspiration to achieve it despite knowing that you won't achieve it, which is what keeps the project going or keeps a person going in their whatever personal crusade or quest or whatever. Without that recognition of that function of utopia being something that is always greater than can be achieved, what you have instead is the people wholeheartedly subsumed into the necessity of achieving that utopia. That's yeah. a recipe for all kinds of disaster on a personal and social level. Yeah, I think that that's a... It's the Sorelian myth. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the, the idea here is that people can, can start to see that this is what I'm doing. And when they, they are able to see that, that does change them in some way. And I think that there's another weird kind of like byproduct of this that might kind of map into dialectical pessimism in some way, although I don't know exactly how. I think when people successfully 
or somewhat successfully traverse their fantasy, one of the things that they are able to understand in a different way than they were prior to traversing the fantasy is that they enjoy the dissatisfaction that exists in not having the fantasy, the utopia kind of come to fruition. What's really enjoyable is to go like, oh, look, here's something over here that I don't have. I want to have it. And if I align myself with this person or this idea or this group, then I'm likely to get closer to it. What it, Getting it wouldn't really be what you want. Once you had it, it would in, it absolutely dissatisfy you because it wouldn't live up to your expectations, no matter what it was. And so what you're really enjoying in these instances is the, the struggle and, and the not mm. having the thing uh, because that's what kind of keeps you striving to do whatever it is that you're doing to improve your, your circumstances or the circumstances of others, the circumstances of the whole damn world. Uh, it, you have to look at things and kind of go, oh, this is not what I want. And when we recognize that it's not what we want, we could look at that and say, like, that's tragic. Or we could be like, oh, look, I have something to do. And that that's actually a much more interesting life than just sort of like being blissed out all the time. Right. Actually, like George S. That- Patton said that he re- I really enjoy war. Peace is going to be hell on me. <laughs> <laughs> I wish Tracy Chapman was my friend. She would know exactly what to say Beginnings always hide themselves in ends At some point I will be okay I got high when I met you I got high to forget you I feel pain I don't want to If I wanna move on, move on, move on. You know, it's funny, you went Patton, I was gonna go Star Trek with that. I was gonna say that, you know, in some ways that's the whole vision of Star Trek. That's what makes it truly utopian, is that everyone is now taking care of, you know, this incredible degree of technological advancement. Everyone's basic needs are taken care of as far as we know. And and essentially now everything in society is organized around this project that can never be fully fulfilled. You know, exploring to the ends of the universe is now the sort of like organizing utopian project that in itself like can never be, I mean, you can like generally hypothetically postulate an end to it. Practically, it's not achievable. It's, it's only something that you're going to continue to probably do like into, you know, into infinity. Yeah. Because presumably there is no edge of the universe. There's yeah, always presumably. some further horizon to go to. And some new problem that we can solve in 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. That's why we have all the badass technology. The only thing that I would take issue with is the use of the word enjoy. That it's the thing that you enjoy is the irresolution or the lack of resolution and the necessity of a it's heightened... It's a subconscious greater. enjoyment. Yeah, I was going to say like enjoyment maybe at the libidinal level yeah. rather than a, in a conscious way. Um, that's why I picked Patton because that if it's conscious like that, it sounds fucking insane. Because <laughs> it is insane. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, and that that is the way that it works. It is it is absolutely an unconscious enjoyment. It's that we unconsciously, you know, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, so that we we don't have the victory because then we'd have to deal with having it. And it's weird. I think when we're in the throes of a fantasy, that you see that happening a lot. Like uh, I don't know, a group will start making progress towards something that they have really wanted for a long time, consciously desired for a long time. Mm-hmm. 
And then, you know, there's a, a subgroup forms within the group that kind of stymies the effort in some way because it's not pure enough or whatever. And then everything kind of like stalls out and they end up not getting the thing that they were very close to getting and they, they'd been working towards for however long. Well, now they get to, to reset and, you know, kind of keep striving for it over and over again. I, I think Neil's call out of the continuity IRA. <laughs> Getting dragged on Lost Horizons Network. And don't hey, even hey. get me started on the real IRA. Just kidding, IRA. If you're listening. <laughs> no, that's all Neil. I wasn't laying claim to it at all. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Right. See, we were about to get somewhere and you just you just <laughs> grabbed that defeat from the jaws of victory, man. That's was, right. Sorry about that, man. It's all right. If I would have so, finished that rant, everything would have been great. <laughs> That would have been the object. That would have completely satisfied our desire. Well, then we would have had to stop doing the podcast. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. And we wouldn't we enjoy that. that. A bit and we talked about that concept a, a bit with the, uh, the activist lifestyle mm-hmm. um, in our the Zizek episode we did about uh, I would prefer not to episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So this actually brings up a question that I think might be a good thing to pose for us to think through a little bit. Does anyone mind if I go ahead and dig into this a little bit? Dig. Well, only right. only if Neil really is actually uh, so derailed as to not be able to finish, because now I feel bad. Yeah, that's true. That. Yeah, that's I don't true. even remember what I was saying. Hot actually, I, I'm gone. <laughs> okay, well then, all right. by all means, Adam, go ahead. Okay, fair enough. I guess at the time that we're recording this, I'm fin- putting the finishing touches on an episode I actually did with Neil's co-host from the Inform and podcast, Jared, and we actually did David Harvey's Marx Capital and the Madness of Economic Reason. And nice. we have this discussion. Yeah, and it's. I think y'all are really going to like the episode. And there's a moment in there where we talk about different economic political systems positing an endpoint and how that functions. So, for example, we, we talk about how in capitalism, you consistently always have to pose that there, there is no endpoint, that, that capital accumulation, that the expansion of markets, at least you know, theoretically, always have to keep expanding no matter what. Mm-hmm. That's like part of the, the constant movement that capital has to always sustain to not completely fucking break down. And we were talking about this, and I found it really interesting to think about systems posing an endpoint. And then I thought about something like, you know, at least the historical examples we have of a socialist or even like quasi-communist system or even a state socialist system, and wondering in those systems, is it actually possible to posit an endpoint? So whenever we think about socialism being implemented, even through the state, you know, the idea is that still at some point we're going to transition to communism. And is communism thought of as an endpoint in some way in these systems? And is that you know, something that we could explore almost like dialectically and thinking about you know, what, what is the endpoint? Or if we say that there's no endpoint in capitalism, is that the same thing that we're describing whenever we say there's no endpoint in this sort of dialectical, pessimist, utopian kind of vision as well. I'll let y'all just meditate on that. So I sort of like to think of the communist horizon now as a place to arrive, right? Like a shore that you land on, and now here we are. Mm-hmm. Or I guess if you wanted to think about it in those terms, it's a shore we land on, but then there's a land to explore. So um, at some point, a couple of years ago, friend, comrade, and fellow co-host on the Regrettable Century podcast, Kevin, said one time in a drunken moment of 22 year old kind of like epiphany revelation whatever or like some kind of house party and he's sitting on the couch and he kind of looks real lost in thought and then after a little bit he kind of blurts out 
wait, if the history of all hitherto existing society is a history of class struggle, and if communism is the riddle of history solved, does that mean communism is the end of history? Or does that mean it's the resolution of class contradictions and the flipping of Hegel's dialectic back on its feet so that the new motor force of history is actually ideological conflict and not class conflict? And I said, yes. (laughs) And I think that's still more or less how I think of uh, building communism, if you could put that in quotes, with Mm -hmm. a lowercase b and a lowercase c. Because I actually think that um, if our species is in any way microcosmic of what appears to be the laws of the universe, we probably won't reach an end point unless we destroy ourselves. Otherwise, we'll just develop in a new direction and find new bases for propelling ourselves forward. Poor Kevin doesn't even remember saying any of that. <laughs> well, he, was, he, was, he wasn't quite blacked out, but he was pretty drunk. He was possessed by the, the daemon. It was just pure inspiration, <laughs> just pure communist inspiration. It was pure Weltanschluung. Where the fuck were you guys when I was 22 and hanging out at Denny's, you know, just waiting for something to happen? Yeah, right? Well, we uh, were 11. <laughs> I was at a, a little league. <laughs> well, uh, unlike all of y'all, in my uh, deep despair and my uh, very economically depressed hometown, I was already getting drunk and pondering communist revolution at 11 years old. Oh, wow. damn. That's why you're so much smarter than we are. I think it's why I'm more deranged and <laughs> possibly traumatically scarred than you are. <laughs> are you suicidal, Adam? A, be a fun contest for us like, to have. Active, Podrad Neil, actively? Are you, do you need to do an assessment on me in this Do book? you have a plan? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> do, do you have means? Have, <laughs> we're we're going to be broadcasting Adam's uh, psycho analysis for everyone to hear you know i really want us to do on the network sometime where neil actually analyzes our shows as if the shows were sitting down on the couch i really think we need to do that i think that's a fantastic idea i think that would be hilarious and amazing i I think that our show would come off as a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what the proper clinical term is now but uh, i think historically the term (laughs) fucking maniac cuckoo bananas (laughs) loon with two o's <laughs> you guys are just ordinary psychotics oh yeah. okay cool <laughs> nice neil Marge- i think you described, functioning psychotics i think neil described uh, red library as uh pure hysteric and i think that is absolutely correct <laughs> <laughs> when you said something about that though like like i'm <laughs> trying to pull something serious out of this i don't know if I'll, it'll work <laughs> um the the thing that the uh drunk 22 year old kevin said about kind of propping Hegel's dialectic back up on its feet. And I don't remember exactly what you said, but it was the transition from one form of conflict to ideological conflict. And that seems really cool to me. When when you said that, I was like, that's that would be great, right? Right. If, if people weren't fighting each other just to have the stuff that they you know needed to have a good life, that was, and, and they, they actually had not just the stuff that they needed, but even you know just a level of comfort along with what they needed, which I think is possible, that means they could start thinking about their ideologies and they could start having discussions with with people who have other ideologies and they could, you know, kind of interrogate those ideologies in a rigorous way. And that could be really productive, right? Instead of, and, and you're not going to be able to do that kind of thing if, you know, you're really worried about paying rent or, or getting your the medication that you need because it's insulin. And if you don't get that, you're going to really be in a bad way. 
whatever kind of bad situation people are in. What if they really didn't need to worry about that stuff and they could really have conversations around the sort of like um, ideas that really had sway over them, that, that they believed in, that, that they tried to live out? That would be great. In fact, all ideology based on material scarcity or fear of it would dissipate. And what would be left would be people contending with the way they feel about the world mm-hmm. in, in, in a purely like unfiltered kind of way. Because it's not the way you feel about the world based on your living on the precipice of disaster. The way that you feel about it now that you're not. Yeah, that or, would be or wonderful. To put, it, to put it very simply, bread is freedom and freedom is bread. Eat that wheat, y'all. That's the one we'll use. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be our battle cry. So I actually think this relates to something that we talked about, uh, Chris and, and Jason, on our episode about Yugoslavia. Because mm-hmm. I think one of the most interesting historical lessons about this particular transition happened in socialist Yugoslavia, but also in communist China, especially in like the mid to like late 60s at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. And it's how there are these moments, I think, where the society or like the hegemonic ideology or the party apparatus or whatever it was actually made a declaration that said we have transitioned from the you know, the conflicts with among classes to now ideological conflict, you know, between the ideology and the party and the masses and the bureaucratic state apparatus or whatever. But I do think that those two historical examples are really, really important to never forget because I think the way that the sort of party elite described itself was as if they had achieved that transition. Mm-hmm. And yet under the surface, materially, it was really a struggle between the formation of a new type of elite class. And I think we had talked about it as the politocracy in the socialist Yugoslavia episode. Right. I just yeah. think that that lesson was something I really took away is that, you know, even whenever, you know, a society or like a political apparatus declares itself as achieving that, it's important to really understand the material basis and to sort of be able to demystify that ideological function and to be able to really evaluate, is is that transition actually what we're dealing with or is this cloaking a sort of new material divide? That makes me think of... Um... The Luz and Guattari's ideas around uh, deterritorialization slash territorialization. I don't know if any of you have have kind of ever dived into that. I have yeah, not. Neil, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to explain the Luz to me, or I can kill you. <laughs> sure, <laughs> no so, problem, man. Have y'all seen that meme? I have. I have. Uh, yeah. You just opened up DNG, so you are now we're fucked. If anyone's gonna try to talk about this. Well, yeah, I wanted to see it with, with either Chris or Jason, like any any D and G, you know, level of familiarity or or not. I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing because when you said deterritorialization, my mind went to uh, the deterraforming project of the Moonanites. <laughs> 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 and I was trying so hard to not blurt it out until you were finished. <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, that's the plan. They made the universal room monster and they sent him down to Earth. Such an amazing reference. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is what the time you tried another moon boy scout toot number 412. <laughs> oh, no, it was the one where they, they made that, the clone. That's a pretty good meat rod. Haha, we did. Now that that's out of the way, Neil, what was it you were going to say? 
We're going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> so basically, the losing retired with these two French dudes. <laughs> Y'all, this is the first real moment of catharsis that I have felt since the, this now five-week-long quarantine process has begun. Yeah, that That's was pretty therapeutic, out. I have to say. Mm. I just have to say, this might be a radical position to take, but the Universal Remonster episode of Octatine Hard Force, easily the best episode by far, no, no competition as far as I'm concerned. It was a pretty good one, but I just I just looked up the explain Deleuze to me or I'll fucking kill you <laughs> meme, and it's Jordan Peterson. <laughs> you couldn't have, you couldn't have picked a better like physical representation of that confusion. Explain That's Deleuze to me or correct. I'll fucking kill you. Don't dumb it down into some vague shit. Explain Deleuze to me right now or I'll literally fucking kill you. What the fuck is a body without organs? What the fuck are rhizomes? Don't dumb it down or I'll fucking kill you. This dramatic reading brought to you by Chris <laughs> from The Regrettable Century. We talked about on one of The Regrettable Century episodes about how we're just going to start just reading memes out loud <laughs> like on the show. Or just explaining memes to Kevin. Yeah. We're going to detourn memes, to <laughs> turn them into long speeches and like spoken word and poetry. You could do like a Roland Barth thing, right? Or Roland Barth thing where you 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 try to really dive deep into those memes and and explain the deep truth that they reveal about existence and social <laughs> I, life. There well, are a number yeah. of academic papers that do that sort of thing that I've seen pop up on my because I have like Benjamin Walter Benjamin and uh Frankfurt School on my academic EDU as tags that pop up when a new article comes out. There's like Walter Walter Benjamins like analyzing memes through like <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Dude, that's amazing. And just all kinds of just meme papers coming out of academia. And I want to make this an assignment you, in my class. Do it. A Walter Oh you totally should. You should find that Walter Benjamin's uh, paper and read it and tell me if it's any good. Well, you know, Rick Roderick once said that the function of academics is to read all the books and tell the the masses out there which ones are actually worth their time. <laughs> is, is that what they've been doing, though? I, I don't know very many academics <laughs> no. that are... That means that the only good academics are... Dead ones. Was, yeah, well, dead ones. I was going to start naming people, but I don't actually know what their position is. But just, you know, people who talk about Capital Volume 3. I just thought we should call some future episode we do the Dead Academic Society. Solid. That might be the thing that we do around the memes. That's not a bad idea. I have an idea for an episode for us at some point, or for any, anybody who wants to be involved, I guess, because we share now. Whenever Adorno's students um, were, like, protesting him, they wrote up a pamphlet a leaflet called Adorno as an institution is dead. And I want to take that title and use it to build around it an episode about the left in the academy and, you know, what sort of social utility it has and what function it has. And, you know, using Adorno maybe as like the best example. There are lots of these people that like, I especially think about like around election season when the most radical professors like Chomsky and whoever come out and tell us to do something like campaign for Joe Biden. And I think like, all right, is Chomsky as an institution dead? Is Angela Davis as an institution dead? It depends on my mood, but sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it's no. If that's the case, then Chomsky has been dead for 20 something years because he's he always comes out in favor of whichever he believes to be the lesser evil. Yeah, I started to wince even as I was giving that example, because I feel like that really, really narrows and cheapens the slightly more interesting before it's defined idea and then as i started to go into an example of what i meant i was like "Ooh, i'm painting myself into a corner here but i wanted to follow it to its conclusion see where it went 
Oh, you just set corner. me up That's here. Where. This is great because what you just experienced was you had you went from a detour territorialization, right? It was this interesting idea <laughs> to territorializing it, right? And giving these really like defining examples and saying it is this and not that, so on and so forth, right? And you you narrowed it down into to this thing which excluded everything that was potentially interesting in there. That's that territorialization, re-territorialization thing that DNG came up with. And I was thinking of it uh, when I brought that up, when you were talking about, you know, like landing on the shore and then like exploring the, the land, right? So uh, that's a, a to kind of riff on that. If people came to a new place, they land on a shore of some undiscovered idea, country, whatever, it's deterritorialized, right? There's nothing there. What they'll start to do is territorialize it. They'll start to to create infrastructure and build systems and say these people can go here, but not those people. They can't go there. Da 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 da. And then eventually, there's a revolution of some sort, and that revolution deterritorializes everything to a degree. Again, but then you have uh, people go, oh, you know what? Like the the revolution didn't go far enough, and then like let's chop off Robespierre's head because you know he's a bad mm. guy. Uh, let's re-territorialize again what we were doing here. And uh, I, I don't, I, when I read DNG, I, I don't know, it, depending, I guess, on when I read it, it's, it's really weird. I find myself never completely disagreeing with what they are, I think, saying. And I never find myself completely agreeing with what they're saying. But mm-hmm. the one idea of theirs that I think, for me, is really useful and interesting simultaneously is, are these ideas around territorialization and, and deterritorialization and I like the way that they, they frame it because they, they say that you can't just deterritorialize something and expect that it will stay in that formation. It, it will inevitably become re-territorialized at some point. And likewise, you can't just territorialize something and assume that that's that and that it's just going to stay in that configuration. Eventually, somebody's going to come around and kind of like, you know, tear stuff down and deterritorialize whatever it is that you've, you've built. This is always going to be happening no matter what. Now, the, the time frames in between these can shift and move around. They can become wider or narrower, longer or shorter, but it always happens no matter what. And it reminds so. me a little bit of Guy Debord and, and Lukash as well. Yeah, I'm going to need to read a little bit about that because I, you know, I never read Deleuze and Guattari because my training as a Marxist was always to just blow those people off as, you know, mm-hmm. academics that are um, involved in just speculative masturbation, essentially, you know. I, I think that they do, they do have a really, um, I think, a strong function, especially if you come from a more traditional Marxist background, to read as exactly the kind of people who really tear down not only Marxism, but also really critique psychoanalysis in a really mm-hmm. productive way. I mean, you know, reading them as a fucking trip because they're sort of like the philosophical equivalent of just taking a bunch of psychedelics and listening to just like speed metal. But you know, it's like once you kind of get into this swing of it, I think they're actually, yeah, they have some really fascinating and really, really complicated, but um, I think really useful critiques of a lot of the sort of, you know, becoming stale institutions and ideologies of the time around like France and like the Western European left and in the States as well. I think we're actually going to do a Deleuze and Guattari episode on Red Library pretty soon. So I'll have to make sure y'all get to check that out. Awesome. We'll definitely check it out. Neil, two different things sprung to mind um, that I wanted to put forward as a response to the last thing you said. There are two, and this one will be first for a reason, is that I was thinking about like the landing on the shores metaphor and the re and deterritorialization cycles and thinking about like establishing a colony and trying to turn it into a great city on a hill only to find it racked by all sorts of conflict and then 
you know, you have witch trials and then you go a little bit further in tax protests and then the establishment of a republic. And then it turns out to have a civil war between slaves and free states and manifest destiny, which murders off most of the original population. And it's this constant, you know, arriving at the, the desired goal and realizing it's garbage and then we have to overturn it and redo it or that somebody does. So that's like the history of colonization and nation building on this continent is a is an interesting process of maybe is it a good example of of that con- continual process of trying to arrive somewhere and never really quite being able to there's, there's no contented place at which to arrive and then the second thought was i almost just said yes just like when the master shake clone failed to deterraform the planet <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so colonization is something that D and G actually talk about. I think a lot, right? So when colonizers show up, if there is actually an indigenous population somewhere, they're not showing up on like Antarctica or whatever where there, there aren't people. What they tend to do is they they deterritorialize, and sometimes they they do it um, on purpose, and other times it's actually not on purpose. It's sort of accidental uh, by like spreading diseases and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, you, there, there's a power system that's there, and that power system is the the territorialization which exists. And then what happens is, you know, there's this this thing where they shift, and you go through a deterritorialization, but then you're reterritorialized into some new sort of like colonial power system. And then there's a revolution, and now we're back here. What I think they're both really interested, and this is this is what what attracts me to DNG, is they're very skeptical of power, and what power does to people. And what power does to groups and what power does to institutions. Uh, because power tends to lead to territorialization. When you get power, you territorialize and you then you uh, seek to protect your territory from anybody who wants to deterritorialize it. And what that oftentimes means is that you're shutting down people who have really good ideas that they're bringing up because those ideas are threatening to the power that you have within the territory that you control. And so what I think D&G are trying to say and kind of advocate for, and I, I don't think they're very good on the how here, but what they're, they're saying is wouldn't it be interesting if people who had power within territories could be more open to deterritorialization or lines of flight, sometimes they call them, these ways of, of considering something different, something potentially better and potentially worse, but it, instead of just kind of circling the wagons and trying to protect the power that they have within the territory – what happens if they didn't, I guess, in a way. And part of the, the thing to think about it is that deterritorialization is going to happen, right? It's, it's an inevitability. So if we accept that it's an inevitability, rather than just kind of trying to put a ton of time and energy and various resources into fighting it, what would happen if we sort of uh, just knew that it was going to happen and, and kind of let it in, in a sense, right? Like knowing that this is something that we'll, we'll have to live through no matter what. Right. I will say just to throw in one extra wrench to the DNG terminology pool that we got going on here. I do think to me, one of the, the things that they conceptualize I always found most helpful is the idea that there are what they called arboreal sort of structures that tend to solidify over time. And they're basically these sort of very vertical, hierarchical types of structures that can be not only political or social, but also economic or even like sort of based around your subjectivity. But the idea is that everything has to be unified under like one universal core principle. And so what they advocated as opposed to that was for things that are rhizomatic. And they sort of think about rhizomatic as if it's like 
this sort of more horizontal, like nonlinear sort of like way that uh, like networks sort of form together. And it's like a completely different way to structure and think about power and like subjectivity and how society could sort of function. And I always actually found that really helpful because what Neil's describing is how territorialization is like inevitable, right? It's always going to happen. But it, they also assume that on the outskirts of the territory or the outskirts of the power structure, they're going to be what they call nomadic war machines, which is just the most heavy fucking metal way to think about this that are always sort of like encroaching upon that territory and trying to deterritorialize it again. And so I think their their idea of like what revolutionary sort of subject would be or like what, what that really means is sort of this force that's this nomadic war machine that's always sort of like encroaching upon the territory and trying to like, yeah, subvert it and dismantle it and sort of destruct it in a different way. And that sometimes those, those nomadic war machines kind of get into the territory, right? And they're not necessarily barbarian mm-hmm. yeah. hordes. They can be a saboteur, you know, who who sneaks in yeah. and poisons the water supply or, you know, perverts the minds of the young or whatever. Or, you know, dumps a bunch of LSD in the water supply, you know, however it works. Rooms for every, every generation does it <laughs> Yeah, I think my interest is peaked here. I guess I got to get into D&G. Have um, fun reading A Thousand Plateaus. <laughs> uh, here's the thing, though. Like, anybody who's, who's interested in this, this is what helped me, all right? Because D&G is is hard, right? So like there you have two voices here. If you read Anti-Oedipus, that is Felix Guattari wrote that. That he is the one who wrote it and Deleuze edited it. So you're reading Guattari. Guattari was the very political Marxist who um was very instrumental in Laborde, which was a, a mental institution which functioned like a commune, really tried to tear down power distinctions between doctors and patients. That that was his thing. And, and he was trained as a psychoanalyst. And what I think he was doing when he wrote Anti-Oedipus is he was trying to kind of like stick it to the psychoanalytic establishment at, at the time. And I think it's a book which is written for people who know a lot about psychoanalysis, although other people can probably enjoy it too. Then in between that, there's a, another book which is not edited by Deleuze, which is just called The Machinic Unconscious, which is just Guattari. And he's taken a lot of actual uh, shots at Chomsky in that particular text as well, because I know we brought him up earlier. And then after that, you have a thousand plateaus. And there's a weird kind of like um, battle going on at the same time between Lacan and Guattari and Deleuze at this time. And, and kind of knowing that stuff can be really helpful. The other thing is that there's uh, and this is I, I don't know exactly where this is. I can find the link and send it to people if they want. And I can put it in the show notes for this show for sure. But there's something I think it's just called Deleuze Web. And he was giving seminars at the time that this was work was being created as he was editing it and before it got published. And there's a bunch of anti-Oedipus seminars, which are extremely helpful to read, along with anti-Oedipus, ultimately. I would say that that's a, a good way to do it. Uh, you can also okay. go in the opposite direction. If you read A Thousand Plateaus, they say that book is like an album, or you know, where you can kind of pick whichever tracks you want to listen to, but you don't need to listen to them in order. You can kind of choose your own adventure through that book, uh, and, and that can be helpful too. Okay. I'm almost skeptical of reading anything that's thought of in that way, because I actually think that the a properly constructed album. Some songs only sound good in succession from one to the next. But I, I think I appreciate the point anyways, right? I knew you were going to say um, that. You always fucking say that. I do. I mean, like, <laughs> it's uh, the art of deep listening is like something I've, be- I've become very uh, a, a, pr- a proponent of. Select tracks can be really good, but, you know, there are some pieces of music which are only meant to be interludes between other pieces of music that have much less merit on their own actually so like the i used to really hate the afi album sing the sorrow 
So I started trying to only listen to it from beginning to end. And now I like every track on it. It's a silly example, but you know, that's what I came here to do. AFI, DNG, it's all the same shit. But on the other hand, the best way to watch the X-Files, I think, if you've never seen it and you want to watch through the whole series, is to figure out which are the Monster of the Week episodes and put them aside and just watch the, the story arc episodes. Then once you become obsessed with the show, you go back and you watch the Monster of the Week episodes. Yeah, well, Completely solid There are online advice. guides for how to do that too. Yeah. So between the X-Files and AFI, I don't know how to read Deleuze and Guattari. <laughs> I will tell you, I've read A Thousand Plateaus both ways, and I do think you can do it either way. I mean, they're just different experiences. So I, th- I think if you want to be, you know, hyper arboreal about it and read it front to back, I mean, I think you can do it that way too. It's totally fine. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, you can think of A Thousand Plateaus as a book of essays. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so you can pick the essays that seem to have titles or, or whatever for opening paragraphs that, that do something for you. And, and that's actually not a bad way to read it. I, I would recommend that you read the first chapter on the rhizome first and then uh, read the uh, the last chapter last, pretty much. Is, and then everything in the middle is whatever. Oh, okay. That's general advice for the uh, the average listener as well. Yeah. You hear that, guys? <laughs> Thinking about reading D&G? Do it like that. Yeah, man. It's just the beginning is meant to be the beginning. The end is meant to be the end. But the rest of it's a journey. And the, the last one that they did together is uh, What is Philosophy? And that's one that, that Deleuze just wrote, but he put Guattari's name on it because I think that he wouldn't have been able to write it had he not done all the work he had done with Guattari. So me, Don, and Alex actually did a reading group on What is Philosophy uh, a long time ago. But yeah, it's it's a hard book, but very interesting in terms of thinking about the function of philosophy as like creating new concepts as ways to like understand reality and phenomena. So it's, again, it's tough, but it's definitely worth the read. And I think that uh, that's actually a really good way to, what he does there too is, is you know, you, there's concepts become territorialized, right? Like, I don't know, the revolution as a concept can become territorialized and this is how you do it and there's no other way. And this actually we talked about in our, our first episode too, the difference between the revolution and a revolution. The a revolution would be a deterritorialized concept, right? It would be, there's multiple ways that this can occur. Uh, you get to pick and choose sort of what what works best uh, give, given whatever, and that's okay. Uh, but there will be people who have power and they will try to say like, no, we want this to be the revolution. This is, this is our revolutionary territory and we have the power within that territory. And anybody who disagrees with our particular prescription for the revolution needs to get out. Uh, they get branded a heretic and no one should talk to them because if they do, they'll get branded a heretic too. And no one wants that, right? Good. Um, so, yep, everybody get back into their marching order and let's go make the revolution happen. And then you'd have the nomadic war machines wherever and trying to kind of like get in there and saying to people like, hey, those guys are dicks. You need to come over here and we have beer and, you know, sweet potato chips and other things for, with our revolution. Uh, it's much better. You should do do it our way. Those are interesting examples that you chose as like highly prized, tantalizing it's like sweet potato chips. <laughs> I guess I guess they're pretty good. <laughs> Oh, he's got a bag right there. Right. So I was thinking once you get 
uh, a really defined version of the revolution. It's a thing that has an anniversary. It's a thing that you celebrate and the thing that you guard a legacy of mm-hmm. rather than a thing you experience. It's a thing you commemorate because it's already happened rather than the other way of thinking about the revolution. Like in Cuba, they always refer to X number of years of the revolution as like an ongoing process. And whatever people might think about Cuba aside, I think that the difference in thinking of life in an altered state as being like the continual revolutionary process is at least much more interesting to me than uh, having achieved the revolution. And then year in, year out, you commemorate it with, you know, a parade with missiles and, you know, people with a bunch of uh, medals on their chests, like saluting the, the parade as it goes by. Eating at sweet least, potato chips. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's like the, if the goal is to make the revolution permanent, then it can't be something so static as to be commemorated. Spoken like a true it's, nomadic it's war machine. On the regrettable century, I feel like you all have described it as sort of when the, I think you described it as like the, the struggle for time loses to the struggle for space. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was a really good way to think about this. That comes from um, Susan Buckmorse. I forget the name of the book. It is called... Dream World and Catastrophe. Dream World and Catastrophe. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, we need to read that together. Yeah. We should. This is one of the things I love about these conversations is, you know, Adam, you brought up the, I, I've actually, I wrote down the title, but now I can't find it, what window I put it in. Uh, you mentioned something earlier. There's this, like, I get tons of great reading material to add to my ever-expanding stack of reading material. Throw it on the stack. This is at the top of my reading material right now. The it's, Directory by Georges Lefebvre. Yeah, my French Revolution oh, yeah. reading group. We're taking a very unorthodox approach where everyone just reads a different thing and then we just talk about it. So it doesn't have Ooh, to be I like, like that. It, it started as everyone was going to read, like someone was going to read the um, Sobel and someone was going to read Lefebvre and someone was going to read something classic like Carlyle and someone else was going to read mm-hmm. something random. But about the year 1789, then we'd all talk about it. But it has devolved into what, which is related to the French Revolution, did you read this week? That's some whoever. rhizomatic stuff right there. Absolutely. There's no territory so, whatsoever. Yeah, right. I've actually read both volumes of Lefebvre's history, and it's phenomenal. Have you all ever heard of Simon Shama? Negatory. No. Nope. nope. Simon Shama is a, I think he's still around, but he was like a conservative historian. And I ended up getting a copy of his history of the French Revolution a long time ago when I read it. And it was really hilarious because his whole argument is essentially that the sort of the aristocratic class were the real revolutionaries and that the revolution was actually against their love of scientific progress. And it's just a really great, wild thing to read. You know, just Antifa to are the real fascists. <laughs> that is exactly what it is. It is exactly that argument just placed onto the French Revolution. I think they say this on Swampside, you know, it's like reading from the enemy camp is actually a really valuable thing to do. Totally. So I would I don't I don't recommend people reading read that book but it was a it was a fun sort of just completely bizarre thing to to read through so at first i thought you were going to say that like there's an argument to be made that the convening of the estates general and the formal (laughs) uh abolition of feudal privileges is motivated by various sort of valorous figures from the aristocracy of the kind of like new generation that was kind of half in half out people who like bought Mm -hmm. their privilege that came out out of the bourgeoisie and mm-hmm. and like notable figures like Lafayette, who's like the American scholar's favorite Frenchman because he fought in our war and he didn't oh, yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't like the Jacobins. But no, you're actually just talking about how the aristocrats were moving society forward and the revolution was actually a counter-revolution against enlightened despotism. That's the same thing that the restored Bourbons said as well. I mean, they had a constitution. Napoleon didn't even have that. It's all dialectical. Have y'all li- it is all dialectical. I'm giving you my little dialectical fingers here. Have y'all, uh, Wait, have is you that, listened is that to what this? Is? <laughs> 
that's what this is. That's little dialectic. This this is the big dialectic where you widen your fingers out to an L, but little dialectic is like this. I love that if we're using any of this, people are just listening to us describe our hand motions. <laughs> Revolutionary hand motions. What is this? <laughs> the podcast. The Stalin clap. Yeah, oh, Stalin yeah. clap. This is like whenever I say something that I think is great and you guys all agree and I do this. <laughs> While you're like, oh, I really agree with what you said and I clap for myself. When Stalin claps for himself, he's Stalin is the representative of the will of the proletariat. He's clapping exactly. for the proletariat. He's not clapping for himself. Right. In fact, if he didn't clap, <laughs> what it would do is it would illustrate how much greater he was than everyone else in the room because they were all applauding him. But if he's clapping along, he's merely applauding the general will expressed maybe through his words, but like everyone else, he applauds it. Yeah, he inscribes himself in the very social order that he is, in fact, the sort of like linchpin of. I, I didn't know you guys were Stalinists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you don't know about me, man. <laughs> <laughs> I rarely drive so steamboats. You don't know about <laughs> Excellent for example, yet again. <laughs> uh, that's me. I am the king of references, as they say. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. And that was a David Cross reference. So here, here this is a, a total uh, derailment here, but it'll, I think I'm going to indulge it because I think it might be fun. Has anybody watched the really? I mean, this is not good television. This is this is was bad television that I started to watch, and I just couldn't stop myself from like watching the next one. Did anybody watch the English Game? No. So uh, no, but I'm going to because it's about soccer, right? It is. Yeah, it is. It's about okay. soccer. So it's Julian Fellows is the the guy who did this, and Julian Fellows made Downton Abbey, and I absolutely strongly believe with every cell in my body that access to quality British melodrama is a basic fucking human right. And, and so I am a huge fan of Downton Abbey. So I, saw I the, subscribe to the, uh, the, on Amazon where you can subscribe to the, the things to get the British shows. I do that. Yeah. Uh, Brit box, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. the one mm-hmm. you, you <laughs> get it. That's good. Basic Word. fucking human right, man. You shouldn't have to subscribe. You should just have it. It should be universal. Absolutely. It's just like how you should be automatically registered to vote. Should be exactly like that. To totally. Yep. Registered you know, to vote. I, British melodrama. I just have to say really quick, Neil, before you go forward that, you know, last episode you were asking us about like our conception of what the revolution was. And I feel like you have a very deterritorialized idea of revolution unless it's about British melodrama. And I, I hear that fucking fanaticism in your voice. I feel like this is the one thing where you would become a pure authoritarian about completely anybody who disagrees is going to the fucking coal mines i don't Oof. agree with it but i respect it sir continue mm-hmm. this is why lenin said history doesn't move in a straight line or or even in an upward trajectory <laughs> but in spirals right as you as you advance forward the territorialized deterritorialized exactly the previously deconstructed elements of the world reassert themselves on a higher we're, and higher we're plane. never gonna let neil finish a point <laughs> Uh, hey, whatever, man. I was gonna say in the in the English game, there's this the the story is that there's this. It's about like the first um, Scottish two Scottish guys who get paid to play soccer, um, which was against the rules in the beginning, right? Like soccer was this like amateur gentleman thing, and people did it because they loved it, right? And so there was teams like the Old Etonians, which were all these dudes who aristocrats who went to whatever school, and yeah, that's the one. Um, and uh, so on and so forth. So they all had this. And then there was a, a mill town. And this, this guy who uh, owned a, uh, the mill also owned the football team there, the soccer team. And he went up to Scotland where they were playing football in a way which was much more interesting and successful. 
than the standard kind of like British way of doing it. And he decided that he was going to hire, air quotes, hire two of these guys to come work in his mill. The reality is they didn't work in their mill. He, he paid them to come and play football for his team, which was against the rules. Now, officially, they, they, they did work in the mill, but unofficially, no. And so in the show, there's a, it's kind of like an exploration of the, the kind of like what the other mill workers thought of this and, and um, so on and so forth. And, and there's a guy who is an aristocrat, Arthur Kinnett, who was a real dude, I guess, didn't know anything about him. Still don't know much. And uh, in the show, it, at first, he's like appalled by this. He thinks this is, this is like the worst possible thing that could happen. How could they? This is wrong. And then he starts to recognize that, you know, he, him and his team like win all the time. But they also have like all their meals. They don't have to work because they're aristocrats. They can take time off and like train and, and do stuff. And uh, the working class dudes, like they, they work really hard seven days a week and so they don't have much time and so he he starts to see that this isn't really a fair competition and he starts to kind of like do this like almost like aristocratic revolution uh from within the football society and stuff and and anyways whatever it's this aristocratic thing kind of put that in my head i don't even remember what my point was but uh (laughs) (laughs) you know i don't know the the english game it's not quality british melodrama but it's british melodrama and so it it passes muster as far as i'm concerned people should watch well it's a it's a question of basic human rights anyways quality or not we need it yeah well i mean to to be clear i did say quality british melodrama is the basic Ah, fucking human right so it's it that there is a thing here right I, I see. Mm. I got to get better at not interrupting Neil in particular for some reason. Because <laughs> Neil's real smart and he makes good points and you're trying to make dumb jokes constantly and usually... That sounds yeah. real Freudian. <laughs> yeah. Unconsciously, <laughs> Jason wants me dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what it is. So I have a quick connection to make between Stalin and British television. Okay. Have y'all watched much? He didn't like uh, it. He didn't like British television. Okay, so fair enough. I have two points to make about Stalin and British (laughs) television. The first Um, one is that he was wrong. But have y'all watched the Iannucci series that uh, Veep was based on about the British? In the Loop. something to do with like a... No, it's not actually In the Loop. In the Loop is great, but there's a television show that they did. The Thick of It is what it's called. That's um, it. Brilliant show. Yeah, yeah, very good. So good quality British television for y'all out there. Yeah, that that was um Peter Capaldi, who was in now pretty much I think most famous for being in Doctor Who. He was the uh what would he have been? Twelfth Doctor, thirteenth Doctor, something like that. And uh before that he was in the thick of it. And he he's great. He's amazing. Super, yeah, super awesome wonderful. If you just you just Google uh, YouTube that uh, in the thick of it, you'll you'll find some amazing rants that are so good. There has been a massive, irretrievable data loss. The last seven months worth of new immigrant details have gone apparently lost in the computer. You know what? You know what's really fucking sad here is that I, I don't even have the energy to pretend I already knew. Which is for the best, because I'm going to need all of my fucking energy to fucking rip all of your bodies to bits with my bare hands and sell off, yes, yeah, sell off your fucking flayed skin as a sleeping bag to a fucking normal person. Can I just say that getting angry actually isn't going to help anything. I've, I've done anger. I'm currently at grief. I'm working my way towards... Uh, bargaining, whatever, you know, you're behind me. I don't know very much about British television. I know Monty Python and Mr. Bean and 
Peaky Blinders. That's about it. Those motherfuckers know how to do a police procedure. I'll tell you what. <laughs> oh, that's better than the American ones. Yeah, they are. You know what? We actually ne- still never said what we were going to talk about this. <laughs> I think Adam uh, might have. True. Adam might have brought something up in the group chat like last week, but that's the only time we talked about it. When's the last time you guys got a haircut? Six weeks ago. Yeah. Two weeks ago. Oh wow! I cut my own hair. My two and a half weeks ago. Oh my man. wife uh, used to cut hair, uh, so she knows how. So she cut my hair. Lucky bastard. Yeah. Mine is. Uh, it was looking. I mean, I'm looking like a goddamn almond brother over here. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that there was something I was really sort of appreciative about because being put into these conditions into this pressure cooker of a material situation. I realized, you know, I want to just do something. I'm kind of losing my mind. My psyche is fracturing. I want to do something just completely different. And I said, I want to give myself a faux hawk. I've never had a faux hawk before. Never even thought about it. But not only do I want to have one, but I'm going to give myself one. And I have to tell you, I'm like really happy about it. And so I feel like, oh, the material conditions brought about this, you know, the impossible became possible, as Elaine Badiou would say. And I'm now just going to go with a faux hawk. So that's been kind of fun. As Sartre said, there may be more beautiful times, but these are our times. Indeed. <laughs> so now we have another thing we can add to, to Alan Badu's truth procedures, right? We have, we have science. We have <laughs> politics. We have love. We have aesthetics and uh, faux hawks. I think the faux hawk falls under aesthetics. Yeah, it could be aesthetics. But does yeah. it? Or politics. Could <laughs> well, you know, like like for example, like the way that they do in Turkey with mustaches. Everybody knows this, right? That there's like a, a, a real trend in Turkey where um, you can tell often a person's like political general affiliation or leanings based on what style of mustache they grow. So like people on the left grow out like big bushy Stalin mustaches, and then people who are like nationalist secularists kind of draw, grow out these kind of Saddam stashes, which are distinct from the Stalin stashes. And the um, the AKP supporters, the, the the sort of modernizing Islamists, they grow out the Erdogan stash. Um, and people who are people who are like Republican People's Party supporters, they shave clean, like uh, Ataturk. You made this this reference, I think, once on the Regrettable Century, but you were talking about Did a place really? in China, and you were, it was oh, the, no, the the Hall of Facial Hair, the Hall of Shaving, the Hall of the History of Shaving. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how many more mustache anecdotes I've got Just filed away in here, <laughs> but I'll try to space them out every couple episodes. <laughs> yeah, you got to really ration those out, Jason. <laughs> so Jason actually used to live in Turkey. I don't know if you guys knew that. No, I, I did not. No. Oh yeah. So the cool thing about having lived in a country like that that people know very little about is that you can just make shit up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the mustache example is true, but. Uh, to give an example of how easy it is to get away with making these things up is uh, my friend Nathan and I, when we were living there, he still lives there. He's been there for five years. But when we were living there together, we made a fun game out of uh, intentionally putting forward false impressions of American culture to Turks and Turkish culture to our American friends. So we would say things like one of our favorite examples of a, a Turkish kind of phrase an expression that we made up that we told all our American friends is um, whenever you hear someone say he pets the dog with the cup, 
what they're saying is this is like a very well-intentioned but buffoonish person who is trying to do something nice but is always fucking up like a man who reaches toward the dog to pet it but with a full glass and spills his, gla- his drink on the dog harming the dog or frightening the dog rather than you know, <laughs> scratching behind the ears <laughs> So you'd have this well-intentioned but buffoonish, clownish friend who maybe offers to help you move, but you know he's going to put a hole in your wall. And you're like, ah, he's a great guy, but he really pets the dog with a cup, if you know what I mean. It's not a Turkish expression, but we told a lot of people that it was. But remember, truth is always structured as if it was a lie. So there's still a, a degree of truth in the falsity of, of the saying. Right. Or as Goebbels said, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, this does remind me of a really great old Chappelle's show skit where he talks about making up phrases, uh, like making up phrases that black people use to just confuse white people. And my favorite one was where he said, yeah, I'll just make shit up sometimes. Like, I'll just tell my white, white friends, all right, well, I will just say without explaining to them, zip it up and zip it out. <laughs> Which I always thought was just a really like, brilliant oh, yeah, skit. Dude, hell yeah. Yeah. And then they start using it. It's complete fucking nonsense. When I was in college, my I, my roommate, one of his favorite things to do would be to uh, a version, I think, of what, what Jason was talking about. Although it wasn't based off of like ever living in a, a foreign country or anything, we would go out to eat or whatever. And, you know, wait staff would do the thing they do where they're like, say, hey, how, how are you today? You know, social protocol. They don't they're not actually engaging you in conversation. They're just doing the, the performance as if they are. And my roommate would, would make stuff up at that moment. And it was amazing to me to watch the, the responses that he would get based off of the stuff he made up. So one of his favorite things to do would, would be to say like, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit irritated actually. I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, in Canada, they're going to be adopting a metric clock. And he would just, people would be like, yeah, I heard about that. I did. A metric clock. Wow. <laughs> He'd be like, yeah, I mean, it's outrageous. Who, who uses the fucking metric system? You know, and he'd, he'd start to, to go off on the, those tirades. It was fun. People would play along. Can- totally. They would, they would absolutely play along with the things that he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Just Sucks. To <laughs> connect up some dots here. I feel like whenever you do this or whenever this is actually being done, I feel like you're functioning as if you're sort of like a linguistic nomadic war machine. It's basically trying to attack the territorialized structure through your nomadic war machine position of subverting it in some way. That was an admirable attempt to make this an actual conversation. It's like when Nathan... Yeah, I mean, I'm trying. It's like when Nathan um, decided that he was going to take the word gay back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that just was a start, really great period. Just start calling everything gay that he liked instead of things that were bad. Because it's back when everyone used to say, oh, that's gay. They didn't like something. He would be like, oh, man, that movie was so gay. He'd be like, no, dude, I liked it. What's wrong with you? He's like, that's what I said. I said it was gay. That's yeah. totally <laughs> petting the dog with a cup, man. It's, yeah, it's exactly. really in the end, he was just petting the dog with a cup. But it's, it was amusing for a while. It's the same guy. It's the same guy that we're referring to here. Yeah. Same Nathan. Yeah. Same Nathan who lived in Turkey with Jason? Yeah. Ah. Same guy. Yeah. I've, I've known him since the first grade. <laughs> he sounds yeah. like he's read DNG quite a bit. Shout out to Nathan if you're listening. He's not. Yeah. Our, our friends do not listen to our podcast. Can you imagine why? What this reminds no, me, have you, have you ever, has anybody listened to You Look Nice today? No. No? no. Oh, they, they, it's, um, it was a podcast that was three dudes and they, they just, I don't even know how to describe it. It was, the, the full name of the podcast was You Look Nice Today, A Journal of Emotional Hygiene. And it was very funny. It made me laugh every single episode I listened to. And then they went away, like the way that podcasts do, right? Like they, they stopped recording because people got busy doing things. 
And uh, now, in the the time of the end of human activity, they just released a new episode. And it, it made me laugh a lot. It's very, very funny stuff. I will look into it. But also, that is an interesting segue into a conversation we could have about this time of human act- in inactivity. Let's... That was the plan. Ah, Neil is easily the, the most uh, cogent host of any of the podcasts. He's he knows where he wants to go. This direction using his fucking shrink magic. His fucking puppet master yeah. Neil over here. <laughs> That's what we call a pro podcaster move. Yeah. Neil is the Stalin over there kind of clapping along to his own words. <laughs> <laughs> fucking shots fired. Yeah. No, I'm actually, I'm really appreciative of that, like, ability to apparently in the words of baba vacan <laughs> to maintain a strong core but a lot of elasticity on the outward ends motherfucking reference king that's what, that's what i came here to do i've been working on my core in this time of human yeah, inactivity neil, i'm trying to compliment the the work that neil's doing to maintain a strong core yeah compliment <laughs> neil's new newly burgeoning six-pack yeah it's theoretical six-pack Everybody who's only listening is really missing out right now. Um, <laughs> so in I have this uh, time Stalin of, six pack. It's <laughs> a lot of potential well, episodes. They call him Joey Steele. So if we ever became like a famous podcast, we could sell merch with just any one of these phrases on there. You know, Stalin oh, six pack. Absolutely. But no, in this time of human inactivity, I'm just curious how people are actually like really passing the time. Um, are you obeying the appeals to use this as a time of self-betterment and you know productivity memes, or are you, you are you instead obeying the self-care, lay on the couch and watch twelve seasons of your favorite show for the third time memes, or is there somehow a third set of memes? There is another set of memes, but you would only be familiar with them if you followed meme pages that specifically deal with Mountain Blade Banner Lord memes. <laughs> Because that's what the fuck I've been doing with my time. <laughs> Explain shit. memes to me or I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> and that's okay, so our, our first I, t-shirt. I, so Mountain Blade, <laughs> Bannerlord has been out for, um, I don't know, like two weeks now. And I've logged 100 hours. That's fucking insane. Wow. But I've been waiting for this game for like eight years. So like I'll, I'll get over it and start doing other things again. But it's I've been doing that and reading. And that's it. Like nothing else. Because I'm unemployed right now. So and running. I run also. And that's it. Nothing else. So I'm one of the millions of Americans who is blessed with the curse of being able to work from home. So my brain has similarly atrophied like Chris's, but instead of so I work <laughs> instead of read. And then instead of playing a game, I just do nothing but think about how terrible the world is. Yeah. So okay. I it's like <laughs> I got <laughs> I watched the craft and that's it in the last five weeks. <laughs> Hell Jason, yeah. Do you have a plan? Do, do you have a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> Now that you mention it, Neil. Now that you mention it, I think I st- I was I was in the process of making some actual plans at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, but since then, it's like a just to keep on the reference train. It's kind of like Luke Wilson says whenever he's drunk at the wedding on old school, that all just went <laughs> I was actually expecting a Heath Ledger Joker reference about everybody goes crazy whenever they don't have a plan or whatever oh, yeah. the hell he says about just being pure chaos in the universe. Well, those are the two the two versions of human existence right now. You're either is it Luke Wilson or Owen Wilson? It's one of those. It's guys. Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson. Yeah, and Owen school. Wilson is the guy that you know. Wow. The nose. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So you're either. Heath I think Ledger's- even the chat was pissed off at that impression. <laughs> I know. I think I was doing more of a Jimmy Stewart than an Owen Wilson. 
I was going to say, yeah, do Heath Ledger as the Joker appealing to Mr. Potter to give people a break on their loans? (laughs) Mr. Potter, if you don't forgive these loans, I'm going to make this pencil disappear. (laughs) Nailed it. Oh, it's perfect. I will say that the way that I'm dealing with this or what, what camp I fall into is actually perfectly encapsulated by a meme that Alex sent me. And it basically says, if during this time you are working out and eating healthy, you are a clinical psychopath. (laughs) Which, (laughs) (laughs) So I'll say I've been doing a lot of workouts. Um, You know, I've given myself a faux hawk and I now tell everyone when they ask me how I'm doing or what I'm doing to stay busy, I say, I'm basically trying to become Bane from The Dark Knight Rises. So I'm doing a workout that I call Real Bane Hours. Um, and yeah, I'm just like fully trying to become Bane at this point. I've gotten really obsessed with Bane memes. I've watched The Dark Knight Rises twice in one day. Um, so I'm very healthy psychologically right now. I was going to say, the really cool thing about this particular period is you can wear a Bane mask outside every day. And I, no exactly. one will even look at you funny. You can exactly. really become Bane right now. So I'm going to propose yeah, I mean, something no one... to you here. This is going to be a game. All right. The name of the game is Connery or Bane. All right. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. I once tapered myself to my third grade teacher. Connery. That's Connery. That's Connery. <laughs> Connery, obviously. It was Bane. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's whenever he's in the plane. He's like, I'm a large man for you. I once stood myself in front of my third grade teacher. Some people think I'm Jesus Christ. He was just a carpenter. I'm a bloody Scot. Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's a great line. That's obviously Connery and good on him for saying it. No, I wish I had a glass down here. This would be so much better if I could say it into a glass. I'd, I'd get the right tenor. I'm just... Uh, oh, yeah, that would be good. Whatever. Uh, really? not, play this at home, folks. Get an empty glass. Say something into <laughs> it that could plausibly be said by either Sean Connery or Bane and have people guess. Yeah. Play with your family. Play right, with your you, kids. You've got at least four to six more weeks in fucking quarantine, so I know you're running out of shit to do. What do we, what do, we do now? <laughs> I don't know. We just I'm, fade into nothingness. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm like you, Jason. Your, your question, I, I, I have two jobs that I can do from home. I am, <laughs> I'm doing telehealth psychotherapy sessions with people, and I'm also teaching master's level university courses. So yeah, I got that, and then I have a one-year-old, and, and so this is, I have never worked so hard in my life. For, for real. Yeah, you have three jobs. That is like three to four jobs. Yeah, yeah, easily. So I think a lot about, Neil, your case being probably even the ideal, as much as that might make some people shudder, right? The ideal for like a li- the way in which American life is being restructured by this dual crisis, uh, economic and pandemic. And like this is these are very early half-formed thoughts. I'm not at all prepared to like posit a real thesis but it is a, it's a thing that i think about like when i said i sit around and ponder how awful the world is i don't just mean like oh man present circumstances suck i can't go to the coffee shop or whatever um but actually i think that like what people are really upset about um is not just that they're bored in their homes um surely that's boring and upsetting but i think there's an existential dread that uh, has to exist somewhere near the forefront of every marginally thinking person's mind about the fact that everything they know about life has been upended. And the people who are doing super well right now tend to be doing so, seem to be doing so on the basis of a presumption that this is a couple of weeks at home and then it's back to normal once we get the vaccine or once whatever, rather than we are experiencing what I think is the reshaping of American life from top to bottom. 
in terms of labor, what's expected of people when they work, the relative importance of what we call the gig economy. You know, you think about these discussions that we're having about like how many millions of people's lives are worth tossing away in order to go back to work. What are the implications for people's personal lives when it comes to state power? And then how easily is that a right-wing talking point as opposed to a left-wing talking point? Mm -hmm. There should be a lot on people's minds beyond just the fact that they can't go to their favorite coffee shop. There's there's tons on mine. Here's an example. I mean, like my, my life is being uh, affected, like things that are very normal are not happening. So at the end of every academic year, one of the things that I'm expected to do is uh, write my, my own performance review where I, I kind of write this thing that says, here's how I fulfilled my responsibilities in the areas of teaching, service, and um, scholarship, basically. And you turn that in and uh, the university I'm at right now is like, you know, we, in the middle of a semester, everything went nuts. You know, how, is it a good idea to have people do this thing that they do every single year this year? Or maybe do we just kind of go like, maybe we have people do it, but we have them do it later. And that, that I mean, this has implications for things down the road, like tenure and, and whatnot. So that's that, a lot of this stuff is, that has been kind of like rock solid in the academic world is mm -hmm. sort of like thrown into limbo right now. Uh, and I'm just today I was in a meeting and one of the questions that we had, that faculty had for our administrators on this big Zoom call is what's the plan for fall? And the administrators were like, you know, we're going to level with you guys. We don't know yet. We honestly don't because there's all these different models that we're looking at and we're trying to make responsible decisions around like the health of our, our the people who work here and the students who are going to school here. Um, some people think that there'll be a lull in the summer and then when the cold and flu season kind of comes back in the fall, that it'll be back with a vengeance. And uh, we're trying to, we're taking it all in and we're trying to make decisions uh, that we think will be the best decisions that we can make with the most amount of information that we can get our hands on and kind of think through. And we've never been here before. We've never had to do this. So we don't know. So that means like when I, I plan for the fall, am I going to be teaching online? Am I going to be teaching on campus? Am I going to be teaching in some kind of hybrid between the two? Don't know. And when you don't know things, it's really, really hard to make plans. And I think, I mean, the university doesn't know what their enrollment numbers are going to be and, and everything. So I would agree with you, Jason. Like, I mean, things that in my small corner where I experience the world, things that have been seen as just um, kind of givens, this is going to happen and it's going to happen at this time in more or less this way. We don't know anymore. We they are a mystery at this point, and that is it's strange. I, I don't even really know how I feel about it at this point. Like um, at times, I'm kind of excited by it. Like oh, maybe maybe something good will come from this. And other times, I'm terrified, and I, I oscillate back and forth between the two. And sometimes I'm hanging out in the middle where I'm just sort of like I'm maybe too fried to, to have a strong opinion or a really strong emotional reaction to any of it. So I just sort of, you know, try to surf the wave and hope I don't fall off the board. Yeah. I mean, like, this is very much a why the fuck should anything good happen kind of moment. I mean, I'm, I'm in a, a similar situation. Like I've been making plans to and never following through on them to go back to graduate school for like six years. And I finally like signed up for the GRE because I have to take it again because I've been out of school mm -hmm. for, for a long time. So I decided to take the GRE and got in touch with my old professors to write me recommendations to get back in and stuff like that. And uh, then this shit happens. GRE got pushed off until June and classes are canceled and they don't know if or when they're going to open anything up in the fall. And at the same time, they're laying everybody that works for university administration off, all kinds of stuff like that. So, And that, that hit me and I'm just like, yeah, fucking of course, you <laughs> know. Why yeah. wouldn't that happen? Why would 
I'd be able to do something that I wanted to do for years. Yeah, it's a cruel twist of fate that I spent from the time I graduated high school and moved out of my hometown until the age of 35. I spent uh, not really putting down roots. I mean, making solid relationships, but in multiple places um, up and down the state I grew up in, different parts of the country, even different parts of the world, like bouncing around, drifting job to job, location to location, getting rid of everything, packing it all away, living out of suitcases, trying every possible thing. And really feeling like, oh, I guess I am by temperament a drifter. And what that means for being able to build like a home life, right? Like a stable relationship with like a partner. It's always been a big challenge. It's always, it's been a thing that has defined my life all the way up until mid to late 2019. And by like, the, really by the end of 2019, I thought like, all right, 2020 is the year that I give this town and this career and this set of people and these relationships and this life, I give that like my full dedication to appreciate and to cultivate all of these things. And uh, now that I'm finally ready, the world has decided, hey, stability is not a, a factor anymore. Take that out of your equation. Instead, put this unknown. And I've never been really very good at math anyways. So the, <laughs> the equation just presented before me is a, it's much more unsettling than I think can be properly expressed in just a couple of words. Because it is like, it's not that all I've ever known has been turned upside down. It said, all I've ever known has been verified right after I rejected it. So there's something for, for you to psychoanalyze. People moving out, people moving in wide because of the color of the skin. Run, 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 but you just can't hide. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Vote for me and I'll set you free. Well, I, I'm, I'm really bad at math, but I'm excellent at emotional calculus. Okay. Um, and so what, what I would say here is uh, I was going to try to make a joke, but I'm going to actually be serious here for a second, right? You do like, both. I try to do both. Yeah. I, it, in, in a sense, though, this is we're, we're living in a, in a, a deterritorialized moment, I think, right? Like uh, whether people were ready for it or not, wanted or didn't want it, doesn't matter. That's what's going down. Um, the territory has experienced a cataclysm and as a result, no one knows what's going to happen next. So this is one of those things that, that I think illustrates uh, really interestingly and it's, this is kind of interesting to live through. It, it, it's not easy, but it is interesting. We're very free, but in, in being very free, we experience the sort of oppression of freedom in, in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is a very dialectical pessimistic take on this, right? Like a lot of times people think like if only I didn't have responsibilities. If only the sort of like social conditions that I am contained in and, and can't seem to tear myself away from were not present, then then I would be free to sort of build the life that I want. I'd, I'd have no more constraints. Well, now I think a lot of people, I mean, maybe they're not experiencing that exact thing, but they, they have far less constraints than they did. And what we're realizing is that even if we have far less constraints, that it, it isn't as if the constraint goes away. It's just that the constraint shifts, right? It moves from one set of constraints to another set of constraints, a different set of constraints. Maybe that, that can make people creative 
when that happens, when they're in a new set of constraints, and maybe it can make people depressed. But from my point of view, I guess uh, that's the interesting thing, right? We're living through this. We can really see that there are no maps for these territories. And uh, even though there are no maps for these territories, here we are still, uh, kind of like our, our chaotic, neurotic, weird selves having to deal with the human condition. And that's not easy under any circumstances. Mm. I don't know if that rant makes any sense. I think we should air it unedited, uncensored. So um, I've been doing fucking great. <laughs> uh, Chris, Chris exists in that small category of people that presently infuriate me because they're doing great. And up so, until this happened, I was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I've been... I've been miserable for years. This is the first time I felt normal in a very long time. And I don't know why. I actually think that part of what's happening or part of how maybe people with our particular framework are reacting to this, not completely because you can go back and forth, but I do think there's a certain way that if your framework, your cognitive framework and your emotional framework has been built to understand that the system, the world system that we exist in is built upon crisis and precarity. And that in a sense, trauma and chaos are kind of the the nature of the system. Like that's actually the norm. That I think this kind of thing happening, it's almost strangely, it makes you feel almost as if you're home or that there's a certain way that this confirms, like you were saying, Jason, it confirms what you thought about the world. And now it has sort of, and I say apocalyptic in the sense of what that word means, like a revealing, like an mm-hmm. unveiling of what is what is actually true, that there's a certain way that it's apocalyptic in the sense that it reveals or unveils that, yes, like the nature of the globe as it exists is one that is just rife with chaos and trauma and terror. And I think there's a weird way that you can simultaneously feel really, you can feel a sense of pessimism and like sort of despair about that. And you can also feel strangely at home and content with it because you sort of just assume that chaos and trauma are <laughs> are the norm. And I will tell you that that is absolutely because I've talked about this with my fucking therapist, and I absolutely think that's part of like how I've been responding to it. And I've actually had people tell me they're like, "Oh, like I think you're intellectualizing, and you're not actually dealing with, you know, you're not willing to to like consider how massive this is, or like how much this is like such a huge crisis." And it's like, no, it's like I been thinking about crisis for years upon years. And so there's a way that it confirms exactly what you thought. Um, and I think that's actually a very, a very pessimist position. But I, I do think like that, to be know, correct. The, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> but, but I do think the dialectical piece of this is that in some way, because you assume that, already that there's a way that it allows you to function within these conditions again not everyone can right like you know we still have houses like i'm assuming most of us are still eating right we have basics but there is a way that it does allow you i think to sort of navigate the chaos in a way that i think a lot of people i know who are now having to grapple with the fact that the world doesn't operate the way that they thought it did that i think they're really they're fucking shook and i think they really don't know how to deal with it and i mean i i'm i'm wagering that i think there is something actually really like confirming and productive about a dialectical pessimist worldview at this point. I have to say that anybody that knows me knows that I have never been optimistic about my prospects in life. Uh, Everyone's like, oh, are you excited about going back to school? I'm like, not really. Because in the back of my mind, I know it's not going to (laughs) happen. But I'm behaving as though it will and striving for that goal, even though I think something is going to fuck it up and it's going to make it so that what I want out of life is not going to be able to happen. 
Why? Because that's what always happens. So mm-hmm. that and the idea that I've been expecting the apocalypse imminently. Mm. <laughs> you know, thought it was going to be a climate apocalypse before it was a global pandemic, but you know that's yeah. that's on the way. I've never had any faith that my life was going to be any better, even though I work really hard and try to make it better all the time. Mm-hmm. So when I see that everything has been shot to pieces and we can't tell what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis, we can barely tell what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis and it's impossible to make plans for the future. I'm just like, well, I was expecting it to get terrible anyway. So now it's just doing that. And even though like, I know it could get much worse for me. I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean, why wouldn't it get worse? Of course it's going to get worse. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to rationalize it. And in a dialectic with in a sort of a dialectically pessimist kind of way. And that's what I've come up with is that since I've just been wallowing in this morass of like, I've been miserable for years. And so now that all of a sudden, like the world is sort of caught up to my misery, I feel a little bit more at home because I was expecting something terrible to happen. It's not like I'm happy that it happened, but I just feel normal now instead of the rest of the world was going on without Mm -hmm. me and I'm just stuck here in the mud, you know? That's real shit. It is some real shit. I similarly have certainly entertained very few vague wishes for whatever has been the, the, the crisis of everyday life, that that was somehow going to continue in perpetuity, that like the last 20, 30 years, 40 years of the trajectory that we've been on would just continue forever. Um, I certainly never thought that and certainly would never would want that. In fact, my greatest fear in my 20s uh, and early 30s was that the world as it has been constructed during my lifetime is one in which I will never get to see even the beginnings of an end to. And at my most hopeful aspirations is that I would be among the plowmen to refer back to a previous conversation, that the the foundations of this present construction of things is so untenable uh, and so rotten that it might collapse with a kick. But I had, at some point in my life, the aspiration was I would be one of the people doing the kicking. Turns out that uh, the dramatic transformation of life that is taking, that I think is beginning to take place right now is taking place over our heads. Mm-hmm. You know, like with with no agency to speak of on the part of human individuals or collections of people like that, that, that subjectivity seems to just be like a non-factor here. You know, we have whatever emerges from this it doesn't appear to be that it will be the product of our of our own efforts. And that's a really weird place to be in, to know that you're like witnessing and not participating in a pivotal moment in history. Because, you know, the way that you think about, uh, or at least the way that I've always thought of history is a thing that you participate in and that's why it happens so there is this weird sense i have which is different i think it's similar chris to the way that you used to feel which is about the world moving past me because as things change around me here i am sitting in sitting in the same room i sit in every day and it's exacerbated by feeling that however fleeting and however ephemeral it might be or might have been the you know it wasn't long ago it was going door to door and knocking on like handing out literature and registering people to vote for Bernie Sanders and whatever and going to the rallies and thinking like, hey, this is a political contest, which in some way will shape whatever happens next. To have that completely go away and yet have the the sense of change actually increasing. It's just, it's a disorienting feeling to be like, not only like, you know, the, the long Bugs Bunny hook came and pulled us off the stage, but the show is still going to go on just without us. That's the really, that's the really uh, disorienting feeling that I, I imagine that many people feel, whether they're thinking of it in these terms or not. It's not that the world is on pause, it's that your life is on pause. Everything else is still happening, and you read about it, and you think, shit, what is this going to mean? I because knew they we're, were going to yank us off the stage, though. That's the thing. 
Yeah, well, sure, you know? but it's one, it's one thing to know something intellectually and another thing to have fully internalize the implications of it. Right. And I think time. one of the things I'm realizing is I have not properly grappled with it uh, mm-hmm. in advance. I'm basically reeling from a, you know, it's like you get into a fist fight and you know you're going to get hit in the face, but the first time you ever get punched in the face, it feels a lot different than you thought it would. Yeah. You remember the Mike Tyson quote? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's right. Uh, mm-hmm. I did not remember that quote, but yes. <laughs> there was a really good quote by uh, George Foreman, and they asked him uh, They <laughs> asked him after a fight. The one about the grill marks? <laughs> no. They asked him after a fight like what his strategy was, and he said, well, I went in there knowing I needed to punch that boy in the head, so I continued to punch him in the head. Fuck. <laughs> All right. I got two things for you both here, for everybody. <laughs> I'm going to do a quote because that seems to be what we're doing here. I'm not going to tell you who said it. You're going to have to guess. All right. It's a game. Again, look into the eyes of a chicken and you will see real stupidity. It's the kind of bottomless stupidity, a fiendish stupidity. They're the most horrifying, cannibalistic and nightmarish creatures in the world. That is from my spiritual guru, the one, the only big daddy for Herzog. Oh, really? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. The prize goes down. One of the, we need to put a link in the show notes for this, Neil. There is a video of him talking about the stupidity of chicken, I think is one of the greatest things that has ever occurred in the entire history of human culture. So I found this wow. by Googling Werner Herzog Valentines. <laughs> all right. Well, that's an innocent enough thing that we all do. <laughs> right. I mean, it just shows you what kind of mental state I'm in here. Second thing <laughs> that I was going to do here is uh, try to, Say something about something from from what Jason said. I think that there's it's something that happens to people with uh, the apocalypse, with the the revolution, with getting punched in the head, uh, with any number of things. Where for some people it's an object; they they objectify it. They think of it in and it's just this thing that they that is not real to them, right? It's it's an idea, but it is in no way integrated into their subjective experience. It's something they can think about and talk about and write about try to look smart about whatever. Um, but they're not thinking about it. They're, it doesn't, it doesn't get into them. It's, it's still outside of them very much. And there are things that happen to people where all of a sudden something goes from being just this kind of like external object, this thing that is not a part of their subjective experience to being something that is, and it gets integrated. When that happens, I think the person is fundamentally changed as a result of the integration the biggest thing where I can think of uh, how this happened to me, I heard about the heat death of the universe. I don't remember how old I was. I was somewhere in my 20s. And it fucked me up unbelievably, right? It just, it wrecked me. And to this day, you know, I'm, I'm 42 now. Be thinking, I'd be drifting off to sleep and the idea of the heat death of the universe somehow enters into my thoughts and now I can't sleep because I'm terrified. Like just terrified in a way that, that I don't even know how to put into words. It, it just wrecks me. And I would talk to people about this and they'd be like, why do you care? It's not like you're going to be around to experience it. I'd be like, that doesn't help at all. And uh, I was listening to an episode of another podcast called Why Theory and the host, mm, Todd McGowan, yeah, it's great, said that this came up in, with one of his students and afterwards she came to his office and said like, I can't get this out of my head. And he was saying for her, she had like taken something and integrated it into her subjectivity and when you take something that can't fit inside of your subjective experience and it somehow gets in there anyways, it breaks your subjective experience. It rips it open and it's different. It's never going to be the same again. I think that what's going on now for a bunch of people, myself included, 
is that our subjective experience has had to go from thinking about things in an abstract and theoretical way to experiencing things in a subjective way. And in experiencing those things in a subjective way, they are changing people. I don't know how what the result of those changes is going to be for myself or for anybody else. But I do know that the changes are taking place, full stop. So to paraphrase the apocryphal conversation between John Reed and Emma Goldman on the Red Terror during the Russian Civil War, up to now, you've only dealt with the apocalypse in theory and not in actual fact. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's it. And um, when you have to deal with it in actual fact, you have to deal with it in actual fact. You, you, and you don't have time, right? It's like it's happening and it's happening in real time. So you don't have, it's not like you can sort of hit pause and think about it and go and I don't know, read something and, you know, now hit resume and you're back in it again. It's, it's, you're, you're just, it, things are happening. When you said something about getting punched in the head, one of the people who I know is somebody who is a veteran who, who was in both uh, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And he told me once that uh, he said, I lost count of how many endless hours of trying to practice what to do when somebody shoots at you. And then people were shooting at me. And it was nothing like what I thought, even though he had like truly and literally spent hours and hours and hours trying to be ready for that and just to develop some form, of, I guess, like muscle memory so that when it happened, his body would just know what to do. And he was like, it doesn't work. When, when these things happen, there is no being prepared. And you can think you'll know what you're going to do in these situations. But until you're in those situations, you actually have no idea. And when you are in them, what you think you will do is very likely not what you will do at all. You'll do something completely unexpected. Yeah, when you get in a fight, I mean, you could hit a punching bag as much as you want and practice, you know, a good proper form and, you know, hope your muscle memory takes over. But when you actually get in a fight, all you do is swing wildly with that right hand and you forget that you even have a left hand. Right, or or you get tackled by a guy bigger than you in a parking lot and you scramble around looking for a rock and then hit him in the head, Boondock Saint style. <laughs> not that that's ever happened to anyone I know.